Warning, this podcast episode contains explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club, a Shadow and Bone and Grishaverse podcast. We will be covering all of the Grishaverse, and it will be full of spoilers. No, really, there will be lots of spoilers. We'll be covering the original Shadow and Bone trilogy, the Six of Crows duology, the King of Scars duology, season one of the Shadow and Bone Netflix show, and maybe even Demon in the Woods, The Tailor, and The Language of Thorns. We'll be covering a character, topic, arc, or wild conspiracy theory in each show. So bust out your tinfoil hats and join us. We're a group of three friends who have spent years reading the books in the Grishaverse and discussing them together. When our group chat went over 5,000 messages in the month after the last book and the Netflix TV adaptation came out, we figured we should get some live talking in, and we'd love for you to join us for the ride. My name is Anjali. I'm Kat. And I'm JJ. And today we're talking about Helnick. So as mentioned, we'll be covering Nina Zenick and Matthias Helver's relationship today. This means we're primarily going to be focusing on the Six of Crows duology and season one of the Netflix show. And to kick us off with a quote that really encapsulated the Nina Matthias relationship for me is when she tells him, you're better than waffles, Matthias Helvar. And he replies, let's not say things we don't mean, my love. (laughs) It has everything. It has waffles. It has Nina. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. Everything. So fun fact time for their names. Nina comes from the Hebrew, meaning God was gracious or has shown favor. And in Russian, it is a version of the name Anne, also meaning favor or grace. Matthias means gift of God. Let's cover their relationship in the books. So Nina is a Ravkin spy on a mission on the Wandering Isle when she is captured by a group of Druskela, which are the Fjordan elite soldiers whose mission it is to hunt down Grisha. One of these Druskela is Matthias. She's forced on a ship heading back to Fjorda to be tried when the ship is caught in a huge storm and she ends up with Matthias on the open water and they sort of survive together, make it to land and try to find civilization. Their relationship is really antagonistic at first, but During their journey, they grow to have a begrudging respect for each other and then a sort of slow affection that grows. But everything is thrown out of alignment when there are other Grisha that show up and Nina realizes to prevent Matthias from being captured by them. She needs to have someone else capture them first. So she sells him out to a slaver ship and he's forced into a Kirch prison. We sort of learn about all these events in a very backwards way in the book were thrown into the plot of their relationship in a kind of medias res. In this show, there's a few differences. A lot of it is actually fairly true to the flashbacks that we get in Six of Crows, but it's actually pretty fun because we get to see as viewers how their relationship started and developed rather than just in flashbacks. So we start all the way from when she gets captured. She's in Kirch, not the Wandering Isle, like Anjali mentioned that she is in the books. 
when she gets captured by a group of Juskela who catch wind of her. We actually learn later that Matthias was part of the crew who captured her, even though we don't see him during any of those scenes. She recognizes his bola and says, you were there. I think the other two things that I noticed in the show are that the betrayal, when Nina gets him captured and sent to Hellgate, is less nuanced in the show. In the book, she makes a few conscious decisions, so she specifically chooses not to tell him that she saw Grisha spies there, versus in the show, the Grisha are there out and about in their kefta. They're not spies, they're not hiding. And then she also chooses not to reveal some key information. She also doesn't explain why she accused him of slavery in the books, because she doesn't want to compromise Grisha's spies in the field. In the show, it's pretty clear that she's just saving him in the nick of time because she sees the Grisha, she sees Fedor in his kefta at that very moment. And lastly, I kind of thought it was annoying in the books how long the secret origins of their relationship were dragged out and we were kept in the dark. It made it really feel like Nina had put Matthias in Hellgate deliberately, had intentionally betrayed him. In the show, you get to see that that wasn't the case. She was trying to save him. Yeah, I mean, I think that Lee Bardugo tried that out as a kind of plot device to build some drama and tension. But I think when they're adapting it for the show, they kind of saw that like their relationship doesn't need that. I think they have enough organic conflicts that you don't need to withhold information to make their relationship really interesting. So I'm really glad that they presented it in a more straightforward way. So I, I was wondering if in... Because in season one, we've seen this entire backstory and it makes Nina look very like we completely understand why Nina did what she did. If Matthias is upset with her in the next season, I wonder how much we're going to be able to be sympathetic with that or if we are going to be continually frustrated if they don't just have this conversation right away. I do think it sets it up for a different tempo of their relationship and when they resolve these issues between themselves in season two. Definitely. I think you're absolutely right that it's going to be tricky to do season two in a way where you're not just like, Matthias, you big idiot, you did this to save you. Yeah, and especially because Kat, as you mentioned, it's so much more clear cut in the mm-hmm. show. From Nina's perspective, of course, Matthias still doesn't know, but it really just is clear cut. She did the best thing she could. I thought that was really interesting. And this is getting away from the actual Nina Matthias relationship for a bit, but maybe we can just quickly talk about it. In the show, they do kind of, I would say, trick viewers of the book for a little bit in that, like, you think you're meeting Nina when Kaz calls for a heart render. And once the heart render that they hire from the orchid gets on screen, I mean, she's very prim, kind of stayed. And I was just like, is this Nina? This is like the worst Nina I could have cast. Like, <laughs> Like, is vibrant and full of life. And they end up never actually using that Heartrender's name. And then the moment the actress who plays Nina comes on screen, like, she just charms the pants off you immediately. I was like, oh, this is Nina. But then the other thing that sort of comes in her introduction is that the conductor says that Nina is a double agent working against the Ravkin government to smuggle young children, essentially, who would be forced to work or Grisha would be forced to be in the little palace against their will out of Ravka. The moment when he says that, I was a little shocked that Nina, you know, would betray Ravka in that way. But then later we see the Darkling and 
He tells Fedyar he needs him to go find her because she's gone missing. It's on a really important mission. She's actually being like a double, or would it be triple agent, doing a mission for the Darkling, and she's actually betraying the conductor. Both Nina and Matthias have backstories that pit them against each other. Matthias, his family and his village were destroyed by Grisha when he was younger. And Jarl Brum took him in. And so the kind of Druskella family is really his family. Nina, of course, is Grisha and has been raised to fear the Druskella in the same way that many of the Druskella fear the Grisha. There's an interesting parallel here because they're both war orphans. They've both lost their parents to the war just on different sides of it. But that's caused them to grow up hating each other, like you said. Yeah, and it made Matthias grow up in a system where he was not allowed cake or alcohol, which I think for Nina would have been a real problem. Yeah, she would have been like, I'm out of the second army if that's the rule. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the reasons I love Nina is, to me, she is peak relatable. And I think it's because she's very unashamed of who she is, but she's also very unashamed by her desires. She likes indulgence. She likes luxury. She knows what she wants, and she's not ashamed of wanting any of those things. Until Jurda Param. Until Jurda Param, <laughs> true. But you know, she likes eating. She likes cake. She likes sweets. And she's very okay with that and very confident about that. She's not self-conscious about her weight or anything else like that. And I, I think that makes her really admirable. But then it also sets her up Uh, as a contrast for Matthias, whose culture is about repression and repressing what he wants all the time to try to fit into this very structured morality and like structured military order. And so I think that really, those are huge differences in their personalities and ways of living their life, which makes a really interesting dynamic in their relationship. Yeah, the real enemies to lovers ship in the Grishaverse. They really did start out as enemies. And Anjali, to to what you were just saying, he calls her too much. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such a good encapsulation of how her personality came across to him, given his background. And it really sets it up for him coming to think it's not too much, maybe. I mean, I do think that Matthias ends up changing a lot as he comes to appreciate Nina so much. He realizes that his moral system is flawed because it had set him up to not appreciate her. One of you <laughs> made the point that as the books progress, we see Matthias grow a lot. Nina doesn't actually necessarily grow that much. She doesn't change that much um, from how we see her at the beginning. Focusing on this enemies to lovers ship and how it evolves. There are a few things, and and one of those I think is really interesting is just that Nina really does not change. What we see in this enemies to lovers relationship is that Matthias completely essentially does a 180. He repudiates Mm -hmm. everything from his background. He takes the pledge that he had made to Fierda and he makes it to Nina instead. Really felt heretical to me. I guess that was the point. And I found it really surprising that Nina, to the extent that you can see development, it's when he asks her not to kill all of his former friends and mentors, she doesn't. But she doesn't really, as far as I can tell, feel differently about them. 
I think the closest that I saw in terms of growth for Nina was when she and Matthias see the Kiergaard together for the first time. And she's horrified by what this boy is able to do. And Matthias kind of tries to gently prod her and say, do you, can you kind of see it from my perspective now? How it's really scary that Grisha power, when you don't have it yourself, can feel like something so different and alien. And she's really mad at him at that point, so I don't think she gives it a lot of thought. But to me, that was kind of the only moment besides her showing mercy and what happens, of course, later in the next duology that you see Nina change at all. I actually think that's a good thing to bring up, too, because we're not talking too much about King of Scars and Rule of Wolves. But Nina, for the most part, her backstory is relatively tame in comparison to most of the main characters in the Grishaverse. Where, yes, she lost her parents, but she doesn't really remember them. She actually had a pretty good experience in her orphanage where the, everyone loved her. She was already charming little Nina. And she's one of the very few, unfortunately, female main characters in the Grishaverse who doesn't have some sort of sexual trauma background. And when Matthias dies, like this is the closest we have to a big moment for her where something happens and changes her perspective. You know, one... One of the things that, as I was rereading, I thought was kind of Matthias's most reasonable objection to falling in love with Nina. Matthias had a real concern, which was that what he was feeling for Nina, she was making him feel. As I was reading the books, I was not convinced that there was a way that he could have been convinced that wasn't the case. I don't know how in that situation I would come to trust what I was feeling if I knew the person I was falling for. Their life depended on me in many cases, and they could simply just manipulate how I was feeling at any point. Especially given the propaganda that you've grown up with around what Grisha can do. And what Nina is doing in the White Rose when we first meet her. Like Mm -hmm. She's making people feel better. She's genuinely changing what they feel. He does spend a lot of Six of Crows hating her. And maybe the fact that he gets to hate her for so long, it might make you doubt, right, if you're Matthias, that she's actually manipulating his feelings. I think the fact that he doesn't feel kindly towards her for a while might be something that makes him trust her. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. He'd already fallen for her at that point. But before then, before she turned him in, I'm not exactly sure how he was able to convince himself that it was real. So one of the things that surprised me about this enemies to lovers relationship is that it does not have the elements that I typically enjoy in enemies to lovers relationships in books and media. It feels very different. What does a typical enemy to lovership look like? I guess I'm not sure what's typical, but I I will say what I often enjoy in them is there's a little bit of that switch flipping from hate to love and a lot of really intense passion in it. I felt with the Nina Matthias relationship, there was this huge animosity that kind of slowly burned away, leaving them to love each other. And it doesn't feel dramatic when they're in love at the end. 
Crooked Kingdom doesn't have the drama for their relationship that Six of Crows does. I think a lot of enemies to lovers, there's still a lot of tension that leads it to be, I guess, more angsty than this relationship ended up being. You know, I think you actually see more of that tension from Matthias's perspective chapters, where he constantly is feeling things like, oh, there's this mixture of both gratitude and revulsion that he both like owes her this blood debt, but also she is literally the target for Druskella. Ooh, one more thing that I'll say that I really enjoy in a typical enemies to lovers trope is you have kind of a hero and you have a villain and they meet somewhere in the middle. So you have a corruption arc for the hero to some extent, or where they come to learn the world is not as black and white as they assumed. This is not at all what happens in this relationship. As we mentioned, this is really Matthias moving towards Nina's perspective. Though to be fair, she learns that not all Fyrdans are awful and she Matthias is sort of the voice in her head in King of Scars that makes her show mercy but she then does it on her own and she even falls in love with another Fyrdin. She changes some of her behavior toward Fyrdins but she does not fundamentally change. I think the other thing we're talking a lot about how she's pushed Matthias to grow past his upbringing education she also confronts him over and over, not just on the Grisha are humans too, but women are humans. Yes. And he comes from this attitude of, you know, feared and women don't want to fight. They are meek and humble and we protect them. And she really teaches him that women are equal. This It doesn't have to be like this and it's okay. Yeah, definitely. She shows him that you don't have to be meek to be a proper woman. And I kind of love, speaking of being meek, how much she loves teasing him and making him Yes. Blush. This is actually so I'm a big <laughs> fan of this couple, if you can't tell. But I love the scenes where she really is making him blush. And yes, their flirtation is great. And Nina does instigate a lot of it to a very humorous effect. And Matthias is the great foil where he's such a straight man who takes things so literally. There are, there are scenes in the book where she's like, I'm about to go sob in a corner. And he's like, but we're in a round room. There's no corners here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was, I had not reread Six of Crows since it came out when I saw the show, but I remembered so many of the lines that were in those scenes. What does he say? It's not natural for women to fight. And she says, it's not natural for a man to be as stupid as he is tall, yet there you stand. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I loved that so much. Me too. I think the other thing I really enjoy about their relationship, like Anjali was saying, is their banter is just so fun. There's so many times where she's making him laugh, and it makes me laugh, where she is telling him that she wants him to kiss her more, and he's thinking to himself, someone has to remember the gravity of this situation, and she goes, I prefer to think of the good times, like when you held my hair as I was vomiting into a bucket, and he goes, stop trying to make me laugh. And I think this is just like, in my mind, kind of perfectly encapsulates, like you were saying, a great quote for me of how they interact, where he's always trying to be the serious 18-year-old adult and take care of her and protect her. And she's always poking fun and getting him to enjoy life. I do think it's an important part of her character, though, that though she's very funny and she loves making him laugh, but she does not do it to avoid 
she is not deflecting with her humor. Yes. And unlike, I think sometimes we see Jesper do that or mm-hmm. Nikolai yes. <laughs> constantly. Yeah. But Nina uses it because she likes being happy and she wants to be happy and she will handle the things that need to be handled as they come up. But the rest of the time, she wants to enjoy herself. And that's just really delightful to read in a character. And so interesting to see that character in a relationship with a character who's never enjoyed himself in his life. Another big aspect of their relationship is how big of a role Matthias's faith plays. And you mentioned this earlier in your fun fact segment, JJ, but from their names, there's clearly this connection kind of marked from the beginning that they that aspect of faith or being directly related to God. Yeah, there really was. Matthias's name ties him to his past in a way that I think is a little bit surprising to me because it really shows how big a role faith plays in his life. And then when he, instead of making that oath to Fierda, makes it to Nina, it it almost seems to sort of contradict his name a little bit. I think you can argue that maybe the gift of Diel is actually the ability to grow and the ability to whatever. But in the way where Mal's name is servant of a saint, he really grows into. Uh, I thought of Matthias's name as much more kind of his past and his backstory and where he's starting in this series. Only slightly related, but fun fact time. My name also means gift from God. You can be with Nina too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that sounds great. The other part of religion that I thought was worth bringing up is when Nina's deep in the throes of withdrawal, she tells him not to replace one thing, his religion, with another being her. And later on, she apologizes, kind of says she doesn't mean it. But this is actually something that Matthias dwells on later, where he actually is thinking to himself, did he just take like his original cause of religion and substitute it for another? Was he like unafraid of choosing a new future for himself now that he no longer had a future as a Driscala? I'm curious what you two think about that. Like, was this sort of a cause substitution? Was this a fairer thing for him to worry about? I think it's understandable that Matthias worries about that. But at the same time, I don't see Matthias's embrace of Nina and seeing Grisha as human as actually betraying who he was. Like he still kind of sticks to this very firm code. And yes, he's modified it, but he still feels like very loyal to Fierda. Does that make sense? Like, yes, he has betrayed them in one aspect, but he he has a lot of love for his country still. And he really encourages Nina to show mercy towards his countrymen and try to make them better. So I think he's modified what it means to be loyal to Fierda, like wanting the best for Fierda and trying to get that. The the love and devotion he had for his country, it's not gone. He's just modified how best to serve his country. He's sort of seen that change. I'll take a different position on this. And a lot of it is based on when he makes that oath to Nina, that I have been made to protect you only in death will I be kept from this oath which I know you both think is really cute. I did not think it was really cute. I thought it was creepy. It, it was so intense and it felt a little bit like Mal's. Yes, I was going to say, is decision. this Mal's I have become a blade moment for you? Yes, this is Mal's I have become a blade, which is I have decided 
how I am going to relate to you and now that's how I'm going to relate to you. Did he ask Nina if she wanted him to make an oath to protect her? I would have guessed that Nina would not have said, make an oath to protect me, make an oath to eat waffles with me or laugh <laughs> every day with me. But I, I found his decision to pick up that oath from Fiorda and drop it on Nina to be the probably the most off-putting part of their relationship. I think I found it to be really moving because that was such a tense scene. You think Matthias is betraying her and then he comes and saves her and pledges himself with what are the most important sacred words to him. But you're right that Nina tells him at some point, like, I don't want you to be with me because of an oath. Like, I don't want you to be with me because you think you have to protect me or because you owe me this like stupid blood debt. Like she wants him to be with her because he wants to be with her and he loves her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll agree with you, JJ, that it was dramatic and perhaps not what Nina would have ever asked him to do, but I see sweetness in it and I think Nina does too. Well, after me saying that I wanted more drama in my enemies to lovers relationships, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be complaining. So one thing is... Matthias, as he grows, his relationships with the rest of the crows develop as well. He starts out trying to rob Kaz, which Kaz, of course, anticipates. And eventually the other crows come to trust him and he comes to trust them as well. And they save each other's lives. And one one of the things that I thought, and maybe this is because he's all of 18 years old and thus much more <laughs> perceptive than the 17-year-old characters, or perhaps some of them are 16, is a conversation he has with Jesper, where Jesper is talking about how he doesn't use his Grisha power, and yet he's never been sick a day in his life. And Matthias replies, no, there are many kinds of sickness. Yeah. And that struck me as so perceptive. Yeah. Certainly much more perceptive than I had been reading the book up until that point. That was not a connection that I had made that Jesper's gambling or a lot of his restlessness and his compulsions might be related to his suppressing of his Grisha abilities. That line actually reminds me a lot of the Darkling saying to Alina about Mal, I wonder how much we understand our gifts, except that Matthias's line actually makes sense. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah, it's so perceptive. And it felt like it gave a little bit more of a window into how much he cared. Would you risk saying that to someone who you did not deeply care about? Mm -hmm. I, it's a risky thing to say. He is putting out there the wrath that he may incur. I don't know, Jesper may shoot him. But it's really perceptive and it's also gently phrased. Yeah. It's very caring. I think that's a great point because there's some point in the books where they talk about how each of the crows brings this like separate different value and the one they list for matthias is his strength and i actually thought that was a very strange almost like superficial one to choose because you're right he's very perceptive he's incredibly loyal and reliable and there were just all these other things besides just strength especially physical strength the other scene that i love between him and another crow that's not nina is he has one with a where she basically calls him out for him saying, like, Nina's overwhelming, she's loud, and she's basically like, yeah, 
And maybe she's too much, but maybe that just means you're not enough. Amazing burn, Inej. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Another incredibly perceptive character, but hers is like, the Wraith is known for her perception. Oh, yeah. Unlike Matthias. Yeah. And she's not pulling the punches there either. That's not a gentle. She's not afraid of him. I also love it because I'm pretty sure she's like sipping her tea while she's doing it. (laughs) Like such a boss move. (laughs) That's really harsh. So can we talk a moment about Matthias's death? Mm -hmm. So I have to ask, Matthias's death, was this necessary? Mm -hmm. I don't like that it happened. I will say that. I think there's some nuance you can add around this question. Whereas, was it necessary but also did it serve a purpose? And I do think you could argue that his death does serve a purpose plot-wise. I do think it drives Nina in the next duology and it sort of propels her down a path for an interesting plot. And to contrast that with what happens in Rule of Wolves, where David is killed for no purpose because it doesn't do anything interesting with Jenya and Jenya doesn't Jenya's been through a lot already she doesn't need the death of her you know partner to create interesting drama around her in the sense that does this serve a purpose yes was it necessary I don't think so I love Dina I want her to be happy always I was really sad for her in Crooked Kingdom itself I was really sad in King of Scars and she spent a lot of that book being somewhat miserable. And I know JJ hates this too. She's very angsty. (laughs) And to me, the essence of Nina, what makes her so amazing is her joy. It's contagious. It spills off the page. And to do this to a character where you essentially make her that specific character miserable for a whole book is just heart-wrenching. I do not think it was necessary. I think it was a little bit cruel. I think that's actually a great distinction. The is it necessary isn't maybe the most important question to ask here. I would say that I felt it was a little annoying because it reminded me of the trope that we talked about in the Darkling episode where you have a former lover be killed off to drive someone else's characterization. So that's frustrating. But then moreover, I was sad that we didn't get to see him actually play out the concerns that he'd had earlier in the book where he was trying to figure out who is he now that he's no longer defines himself as a Druskela. Like, is he just afraid of choosing a future for himself? I wanted to see what that future he chose was. And it felt like that kind of got ripped out from under us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With his death, the thing that I found hardest to believe, hardest to swallow was how totally chill he was with it. (laughs) He's like, oh, no, now I've found my purpose, and it's totally okay. Just do not get revenge and bury me. And I'm like, you're 18. You just, I'm doing air quotes, but like figured it out. He figures out what he wants. He figures out this future. He's like, oh, I'm not getting it now. Cool. No problem. That, I think writing it any other way would have been gutting. I think it's it's like a very... It was gutting. <laughs> I mean, e- even more. I think it, it, it was a very tragic death and she could have gone really deep Dark. on like his perspective on that. So I think that making him really chill with it sets it up for people to not hold it against Nina when she does eventually move on. I, I know we're not talking much about King of Scars. 
I thought it was actually super annoying how she basically just buried his corpse and Hannah immediately pops out. And I was like, all right, this was not a subtle transition at all. Can we just have a moment to grieve? We grieved for him so much. We spent so long grieving for him. One of the things that really disconnects me from a book is grieving for a character who I clearly did not feel as strongly about as the author hopes that I did. And I liked Matthias. His death, I don't know. I I wish he hadn't died, but it didn't bother me so much. And so the extent of the grief really got to me. It showed me a way that I was supposed to be feeling about the book in order to continue on that that I was not. So it was also weird because it took like years between the two duologies for them to come out. So it felt like we'd all kind of moved on maybe from (laughs) Matthias's death. (laughs) But it was like yesterday for Nina. Very good point. I think the other question that we've been dancing around, besides just was Matthias's death believable, was their overall shift from enemies to lovers relationship believable? I feel it kind of was. And I do think it was because it was a slow progression. And it's not like all of their concerns for each other were wiped out immediately. I think over the course of two books, they grow to learn more about each other's cultures and what is not so evil about their cultures and they relate to each other more and more. And this happens both before they quote unquote get together, but even afterwards in Crooked Kingdom, you sort of see them grow closer and learning more about each other. And I think that makes it very believable for me. I know that's kind of in direct opposition to what JJ says she enjoys in Enemies to Lovers trope. Maybe something more passionate and immediate would have been more exciting for JJ, but this kind of made it more realistic for me. And I think the dialogue between them was also written exceptionally well. I completely agree with the dialogue. I think the best part of that duology for me was the dialogue between Nina and Matthias. That was just really, it was was a really well done relationship. I do I, I did. And we know that you have a soft spot for extremely funny female characters. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I, I like was with them other than the times when they weren't talking to each other and I got just really frustrated, but it felt like an organic feelings developing sort of thing for me. It was also something where I thought a few times, dang, it's lucky that Nina got Matthias <laughs> because for, for all his obstinance and for all being a stickler, to reevaluate one's entire worldview like that mm. is that takes back to the strength. That takes a huge amount of strength, a huge amount of willingness to question what you believed in the face of things to the contrary. And I do not think most people could have done it or could have done it that quickly. And so it felt believable, but certainly not what might have happened had any other Fjordan been the one who was also floating in the water with her. Very true. And Matthias is also lucky it was Nina who he got trapped with, because I don't see many other Grisha convincing him otherwise. I'm trying to imagine if he captured Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the setup is that Nina actually needed Matthias in order to survive, and he needed her as well. She needed someone to swim while she kept them warm, and he needed to be kept warm while he was swimming them to safety. I thought that was a good setup for why they each 
consented to get to shore with the other so that you had them in that situation to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I think you both are right in that there were parts of it that were believable. The initial setup of the on two different sides of the war is a little hokey, a little cliche. But what I did think that Bardugo did really well was show the evolution, especially of Matthias's thinking. There are parts even in late Crooked Kingdom where he catches himself thinking unnatural and then he reframes it in his own mind to, no, miraculous. And I think that's kind of nice to see him, that it's not this overnight shift to kind of completely abandon your education and what you were brought up learning. One of the things that surprised me is that they were in season one of the Shadow and Bone Netflix show because... Matthias and Nina have essentially their own storyline going almost 100% of the time. The crows show up in her room after she's been kidnapped. They don't meet her until the very end. And Nina and Matthias only interact with other characters we know when Fedor finds them at that inn. And so it's really, it's much more of a setup than it was a related story on its own. And I was torn of course i enjoyed their scenes their the dialogue is incredible the actors were great but you know one of the complaints my parents started watching the show and they're like i can't keep everyone straight and there there were so many characters and so much going on that i wondered what you both thought about the choice to have that in season one of the show i think it was a bold choice them really betting that there's going to be seasons two three etc otherwise you definitely would not include them As a reader and as a viewer, I also found their scenes to be amongst the most delightful of season one of the Netflix show. So selfishly, I'm glad they had them in there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was bold. They're definitely going for the long game play. Yeah, I see how it would be confusing, especially to non-readers. But I, for one, loved it. I read an interview with the showrunner and how he initially got involved in the project is that he read six of crows and and crooked kingdom and loved them and like i understand from the tv creator's point of view is trying to shoehorn this relationship or their scenes into season one i think it was an option he could have easily left them out but maybe he loves nina matthias as much as i love nina matthias and just really wanted to include them so very sympathetic to the choice very grateful to it acknowledge it can be confusing but i just feel like They're such a delight. The actors had amazing chemistry and it was a nice respite from some of the other dramatic scenes going on. It was just like kind of pleasant, lighthearted side plot. Okay, we've kind of gotten into this. Anjali, what are your thoughts on Helnick as a couple? Lightning round question number one. Love, number one favorite couple. Mm -hmm. Oh. They've got everything. They're so delightful together. There's so much growth in their relationship. Their dialogue is sparkling. And I just, I like both of the characters individually. I will admit I love Nina more, but you know, them together, just, it makes my heart sink. I agree. I have a super soft spot for Helnick as well. I think in large part, it's because this couple is the one that most reminds me of parts of my own relationship. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> the bumbling guy who doesn't always understand your immediate jokes. Like, I'm not saying I'm a Nina, but I think there's a lot of Matthias-esque aspects of my partner that I recognize. The other thing I was going to say is, similar to JJ, I really love enemy-to-lover relationships and romances. And I think this is... 
it's kind of weird maybe, but I kind of like the ones where there's that like super conflicted feelings in at least one of the characters. So in this one, it's Matthias feeling that mixture of revulsion and attraction. It kind of reminds me of another series I really like, which is The Cruel Prince, especially where the main character, similarly, he's like really attracted to her, but he's not into humans. I don't know. There's something about that, like overcoming your otherwise. Actually, this is true of Dark Lena, too. Oh, my God. I'm like realizing this. Like, I think that makeout scene where he's both angry at himself, like he does, he kind of doesn't want to be doing this. And yet it's all he can think about doing, supposedly. So he says that makes it so hot for me. I mean, I enjoyed the scenes between Nina and Matthias a lot. It was very enjoyable to read about. I think I'm going to I'm going to call this the healthiest relationship in the Grishaverse by the end of it. Wow. I think I, I was trying to think of others. I, I, I think healthiest relationship. They seem by the end they have a great friendship, a great understanding. They're each willing to do so much for the other and they really love and respect each other. And it's great to see. I guess I forgot to mention, I also love the scene in Crooked Kingdom where they're in little Ravka and he's trying to be friendly to the older Ravkin woman. And she says something about the princess and barbarian story to Nina. And he doesn't get it. He's like, oh, they become allies in the cave. Got it. And she's like, no, (laughs) not quite. (laughs) And as always, to wrap up the episode, I'd love to do a quick kiss, Mary kill. We're going to do something slightly different, a little raunchy this time, maybe, and do a couples edition. So your options are to join the Helmic couple, Kanej couple, or Darklina. Oh, dear. Kat, this is so hard. This is so hard. So I've been, (laughs) thank you for giving this ahead of time (laughs) this time. So here's part of my thinking. I think for kissing... Kanej is obviously out since that's not the the whole Mm -hmm. touching thing like we discussed previously. I think that is also prohibitive for marriage. And I think I'd just be too terrified to be married to them. They're both very intimidating. (laughs) So I think we have to kill them. Then (laughs) there is the question for me. I think if the Darkling and Alina were together, his possessiveness and jealousy would just be off the charts and so what is least (laughs) likely to get me killed is it just kind of like kissing you have like a one-off or is it you marry them and then the first time alina shows me some amount of affection that alex feels like he didn't (laughs) adequately get then he kills me i think it's going to be the one-off so I will marry Helnick. I think it'll be difficult for Matthias, but Nina will cajole him into it and it'll be fine. <laughs> Kill Kadaj, kiss Darklina. I'm okay. with you 100%, JJ. I agree on all your Woo! choices. However, for me, it maybe didn't torture me so much to choose some <laughs> of them. I love Nina. We know Helnick is my favorite couple. I would marry them in a heartbeat. Kanej is out for the same reasons you said. They're both uncomfortable with touch. That's what can you really do with that? So they're getting off, unfortunately, even though Inej is one of my other favorite characters. And I would say the Dark Lena physical scenes we've seen in the book are pretty great. Very exciting. Would happily kiss them. I think I'm actually in agreement with both of you. I would choose Helenic to marry into I already said my real life partner reminds me of Matthias, so this is kind of a known relationship in some sense. I love Nina. 
if Matthias actually still has to die, then at least I'll still be there for her. But regardless, I think of the couples, they're the ones where Nina just has so much love to give to the world that she could have two partners. I agree with Anjali that Dark Lena, it's primarily because their scenes are just so hot. But on the other hand, I also think I would be sadly like left in the corner <laughs> all the time. <laughs> but maybe like JJ said, that's better for my overall safety yeah. and like well-being. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know. I feel bad. I feel like every time I kill Kaz, but yeah. Thanks again so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, or leave us a review or rating. And if you have any questions or ideas for us, please drop us a line at crowclubpod at gmail.com.